0: starting yet. No, no, back, back, back. You'll get your cue. I was going to swing a golf club, but as he got in my way. That's right. Uh, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the Edith Kinney Gaylord Cornerstone Art Center. <laughs> took, me, took me half a day to memorize that. Um, thank you all for coming. I want to thank Tom. Tom's been a, a, not only a great friend, but a great collaborator, as he said, for more than a quarter century, and someone who appreciates a good laugh, uh, both on stage and off. And I've had many uh, great times here at, at CC. I think I've been here uh, at least half a dozen times and worked on several productions. And I've always enjoyed the company of the students and the staff and, and the sort of great spirit of this part of the world. And I've enjoyed being here for the last week. Um Make em Laugh, The Funny Business of America is exactly, as Tom says, a six-part series uh, about the history of American comedy over the last century. And uh, in many ways, it was a follow-up project to a 2004 project I did with my collaborator in New York, the producer and director, Michael Cantor. And that was Broadway, the American Musical. I don't know how many people saw it. You don't have to, no show of hands is necessary. But it was a very ambitious project for a lot of reasons, um, mostly because no one had ever told the story of the Broadway musical before on that kind of level. And people always said, why? And the answer was always, royalties! And uh, clips, and finding things, and clearances. Uh, It's very, very complicated, especially in the music business. Um, But as complicated as Broadway was to put together, one of the easiest things about it was, come in and sit down, please, Um, was sort of how to tell that story. Uh, The history of the Broadway musical, I would say, is sort of a cumulative story. It begins Wherever you decide it begins, what Ziegfeld in 1907 doesn't really matter. But every element of the American musical kind of builds on itself. I think every musical that's out there, in some manner, shape, or form, either accepts or rejects its uh, uh, ancestors in some manner, in some way. Um, we uh, there's a great uh, stage director named George Abbott. Some of you may know him. He collaborated on the books to Pajama Game and Damn Yankees, and directed million shows. He lived to be 106 or something. And uh, one of his habits was when a show opened he always scheduled breakfast the next day with a new set of collaborators. So we didn't care what the reviews were let's get moving on a new project. And Michael and I met the day in October of 2004 after Broadway debuted and said what are we going to do next? And Michael was very affected by the fact that that was in the middle of the right before the 2004 election. And he felt how polarized, how polarized the country was and uh, what a difficult time it was. We can cast our minds backward through the dark <laughs> abysm of time, but it was not a, a happy time. And um, he said, surely there was a time when all Americans were on the same page. Surely there, there was a time when all Americans laughed at the same thing, whether it was Jack Benny or Bob Hope or whatever. And that got us thinking, could we tell the story of comedy in America? And we said, sure, why not? Because um, at least it'll be fun, right? If you, you know, I've seen more clips from the Mike Douglas show, I think, than anybody in civilization in the last, <laughs> in the last four years. Um, uh, and uh, we realized pretty early on that what we did not want to do was explain what was funny. Because that's you know, a mugs game, as they would say in, in, in uh, the East End of England. You can't win that one. And no one wants to hear it. Uh, E.B. White said explaining comedy is like dissecting a frog, doesn't do the frog any good and it's not particularly interesting to look at. Um, And so we thought uh, it would be much more interesting to try to examine what made America laugh and why. And that was sort of our target. What were the things that were popular? Who were the people who bubbled to the surface even if they had one brief shining moment of popularity? or if they had 40, 50 years of comic history, or if they changed genres, if they started on radio, and then went to television, and then went to movies. Um, and uh, that's how we s- thought we should look at it. And, and uh, the next problem was, I'll talk a little bit later about some of the technical problems, and we'll have some time to, to answer questions, was how were we going to organize this? Um, and clearly, comedy in America is not cumulative the way the musical is, because it's not a sort of genre per se. Um, it was much more complex. And we thought maybe comedy is actually cyclical. And we went to a boardroom in uh, a PBS station, Channel 13, public broadcasting system in New York, and we wrote every comedian we liked, because they had to make us laugh, on an index card. And we shuffled them around and shuffled them around. And finally I said, you know, really there are six basic archetypes of American comedy. Some of them are borrowed from other countries, but there are six things that define us, and they're cyclical. People, people, uh, different people every 10 years sort of reinvent that idea. Uh, And that was very exciting for us, because we realized then we did not have to tell the story chronologically. Because if you tell the story of American comedy chronologically, your first hour is going to be silent and black and white, and no one will tune in to the second hour. Uh, so this sort of made us break out of the box and, and allow us to think differently. So um, in no particular order, because there's a companion book, which I gather some very enterprising CC student has stolen from the uh, the open shelves upstairs. Um, you can get yours on Amazon. Um, uh, is organized a little differently than the series. But here are the, the basic categories. Slapstick comedy, physical comedy, right? We, we, something we borrowed from the Commedia dell'arte from Europe, but Every, every people have reinvented that from Charlie Chaplin to Jim Carrey. Uh, the domestic comedy, uh, you could call it a sitcom, but the domestic comedy really starts earlier with plays like uh, You Can't Take It With You, and radio shows like the Goldbergs and Burns and Allen. And now, of course, it's one of America's great uh, comedic genres. It gets into trouble occasionally in terms of popularity. Um, the third genre, we thought, were, were the groundbreakers, were people who as comedians, really uh, broke taboos and stepped over the line and uh, really made things uh, uh, difficult, uh, used comedy as a way of accessing the truth, and were often in danger of flouting the First Amendment so significantly they, they risked, forget uh, a career suicide, but but actual uh, imprisonment and uh, uh, loss in jail terms and things like that. We'll talk a little about that later. Um, Satire and parody is the fourth one. I think I'm keeping up in my brain. That's one I particularly love. I think that's a very American idea. It goes all the way back to the founding of this country. We've been pretty brave because we don't have sort of the same libel and slander laws that, say, England does. We don't have to worry about being tortured or imprisoned, particularly, uh, because of what we say about a president. Uh, those of you who have a vast canvas of American historical knowledge may remember you know, the way Washington, or Jefferson, or Jackson, or Lincoln were treated in woodcuts at the time. I mean, these guys had nothing on, on uh, you know, Jay Leno and David Letterman. I mean, it was really, really rough back then. And that's something interesting. Americans think they can make fun of things. You can, you can take something and absorb it and twist it in and out and sort of become part of it and, and, and show it for all its uh, flaws, whether it's a parody of a film or satire of a, of a, a president or a social situation and we'll get to see some of that. Um, Then we thought there were sort of particularly American types. I called this the wise guy and smart aleck. And this sort of stretches back to the snake oil salesman from the Old West, the con man. Uh, The confidence man is a novel by Herman Melville. He coined the term. And those are characters that we all know, like W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, uh, people who who speak quickly or trying to pull one over on you. Uh, I think I said Americans like fair play, but we're always attracted to the kind of comics who don't play fair, uh, and that was that particular genre. And uh, the last genre I to, genre I want to talk about, archetype, is actually we'll, where we will start, which is um, nerds, jerks, slackers, and oddballs, um, which are really the people outside the frame in American comedy, or outside the frame in American society, I should say. And that's, again, something else that's American. America has this kind of tension about, well, there were a certain group of people who were here who belonged to the club, whether whether you're in high school or whether you're the El Paso club down the road here. And then there are all the people who kind of want to get in, right, and try to get in, try to make the grade, try to make the team, try to get the girl, and can't. And so many of our comedies are based on that person who's odd man out. so uh, that's sort of where I want to start tonight. I want to because the thing that really made it exciting for us is once we got these types, we could line up one comedian after another, and you could see some of the sparks that came from simply the juxtaposition of one type after another. So this is the the very first episode. You'll see a very very popular contemporary. Um, artist of this particular genre, and then we're going to flash back to to see a, a comedian whom I personally revere quite a lot, not least of all because he reminds me of one of my best friends. So, Adam, take it away.
1: American history is full of golden boys and girls whose social ease, material and romantic success, and effortless charm make them the idols of everyone in their circle. This program, however, is not about them. <laughs> <Hilarious. laughs> Calling the nerds, jerks, or dweebs. oddballs, misfits, or psychos, slackers, stoners, or freaks. These outsiders never fit in, except when it comes to comedy.
2: I think everybody uh, feels like an outsider. So, you know, movies and television and comedy about underdogs, there's no one who doesn't feel like an underdog. George Bush feels like an underdog. Everyone's on me about these choices I've made, but I gotta prove I'm right. You know I have to kill these guys because you don't negotiate with terrorists. Oh, really? Because, yeah, that's what we should be talking about right
3: now. And these terrorists
2: multiply, and bunnies.
3: We're leave the M16.
2: We all feel like, what's going on right now? And, like, no one feels safe. And it makes people act crazy. And that craziness is funny, you know? The way that we all behave, when we're in a panic. You can't take anything seriously! You didn't even read the baby books! I didn't read the baby book! What's gonna happen? How did anyone ever
3: give birth without a baby book? That's right, the ancient Egyptians! Engrave what to expect when you're expecting on the
1: Pyramid Walls. I forgot about that. <laughs> John Apatow produced critically acclaimed television series like Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared and then hit Hollywood gold with his tales of various losers, sweet if nerdy souls, who had flown under the radar of success. Do you remember get a drink song? We're going to party and get
2: crunk and rocked out? dude. Yeah. Well done, man. You have these kids, and they're underdogs, and they're goofy, but in a way they know that they're cool also. So even as they're getting picked on, they're also arrogant that they're maybe better than the people who are beating the crap out of them. I oh,
3: hope I can still have kids. Come on, you've got to support. You didn't <laughs> have a hysterectomy.
1: His losers are big winners. Over the last four years, his string of film comedies, equal parts charmingly sympathetic and hilariously filthy, have grossed over a billion dollars. The outsider has become in. I respect women. I love women. I respect them so much that I completely
2: stay away from them.
3: What is the difference between high eight and digital videotape?
2: Well, I don't know why these movies are happening right now. I mean for myself, I'm just trying to reflect the attitudes of me and my friends. As awful as that is. I am your <laughs> You know, every once in a while somebody asks me about uh, immaturity and they act like these the movies that we've been working on brought it back or something. And really, immaturity isn't every comedy ever made. There's really no comedy that isn't about immaturity.
1: In the midst of the silent film era, America emerged victorious from World War I. The image of the all-American boy full of pep, drive, and good-looking, chiseled features came to dominate the national scene.
3: Harold <clears throat> had a personality that was typically American. He couldn't be anything else but American. He embodied that American aspiration, that sense get the job and get the girl. And uh, you can only have that, I guess, maybe in a, in a culture that allows upward mobility where there's the possibility of really striking a rich and changing your station. What was great about Harold Lloyd was he was the misfit in the wrong social
2: situation. But he was there intentionally. He wasn't a fish out of water. He put him, he took himself out of the water. He wanted to be you know, the hot young man on campus. He even invents a little dance step to do when he introduces himself to people so that they'll remember him. Oh, that's that guy,
3: yeah, he's great. <laughs>
2: it's that kind of striving to be cool. I mean, there's nothing funnier than a completely uncool guy really kind of, I do fit in, I, I'm a of him, you know? <laughs> that's why we're laughing. <laughs> in
1: 1914, Harold Lloyd came to Hollywood from Nebraska and soon teamed with producer Hal Roach, playing a variety of clownish characters.
3: In the early days, remember, we all had mustaches or chin pieces or some identifying character, which I did. I played many different ones. One of them was Lonesome Luke that I played for a long time, but I felt I'd never get any farther than
1: Lonesome Luke had at that moment. The simple addition of a pair of lensless tortoiseshell glasses reframed Lloyd's career from a whole new perspective. People at the time, in the early teens, if you wore glasses, they weren't flat fashionable like they are now. It was a handicap. It was there it was something wrong. If Lloyd's new trademark glasses made him seem more of a coward or a milk toast, it was all the more reason to put his new persona into dangerous scrapes, the likes of which had never been seen in silent film. The thing was that the glasses gave
3: you an idea of studious or academic appearance, but I belied those. I didn't live up to what the glasses, uh, uh, more or less, promised. In
1: 1925, Lloyd threw his bespectacled nerd into the perils of the college campus in his feature-length masterpiece, The Freshman.
3: This Freshman was a very simple thing. All the boy wanted to do was to be the most popular uh, boy in college, The only thing is that he went to college with the wrong idea of how to go about it.
2: You look at the freshman, he was the wannabe. He's the guy who's kind of trying to climb, and that was what was charming about him.
0: In the freshman, Harold Lloyd is having a little fun at the expense of American
2: values, and a little fun at the desire to be popular above all things, and the wish to succeed. I think he was able to
0: find comedy in a young man's drive for success. Uh, Dangling on a building is one way of doing it. Being the football hero and winning the football game is another way.
1: In the age of silent films, Harold Lloyd proved that even a boy with glasses could win the game, the girl, and the hearts of the American public. Great,
0: okay. um, I like Harold Lloyd so much because he reminds me of Tom Lindblade. Um, uh, so you can see that, this, that even back in 1925, 1920, 1920s, Lloyd was setting up this archetype that you know you could try to get on the team, and even movies like As Far afield as some Woody Allen movie like Bananas, or or The Water Boy with Adam Sandler, or any movie with Ben Stiller practically carries on that sort of basic idea of trying to fit in. Um, one interesting thing about Lloyd uh, is a lot of things interesting about Lloyd. He was called, in a British documentary, the third genius, the first two obviously being Chaplin and Keaton. But his movies hold up in many ways better. I think he's a slightly more modern figure. He, he is different people in different movies, which is interesting. And um, he uh, uh, always wore those glasses no matter what. You know, No one in, the, in their right mind would play football with their glasses on, of course. But he did. That was his character. And he was sort of handsome and got the girl at the same time. Um, He was, uh, had, uh, I'll talk about that in a second, actually. One of the things that happened was he in, I think, 1923, he was doing a publicity uh, event for a movie called um, Hidden Spooks or something, a haunted house movie, and he was playing around with a, a prop bomb and lit the fuse, and it was actually a live bomb, and blew off three of his fingers on his right hand. Uh, and he retired, um, I mean, this is days long before plastic surgery, retired from the movies for about a year. And Sam Goldwyn, the great Hollywood producer, actually started life as a glove maker in Gloversville, uh, in New York, and knew a lot about how to create thesis and things like that, and created an artificial glove on Lloyd's right hand. So that thing you see from Safety Last, where he's holding on to a, a clock, This is a man who has seven fingers doing that. So all the stunts he did um, were in that way. Interesting guy, Harold Lloyd. Um, And I suggest you seek out more of his work. Um, One of the things that I started to notice as I was researching these comics, I think we've profiled about 65 comedians in the series and 75 comedians in the book. Not everybody's favorites, but I think uh, people who made us laugh and were indicative of general trends or were particularly popular. Um, is the role of technology in comedy. And uh, not to sort of belabor that, uh, but we sort of forget how uh, radio was so great for comedians. It took a long time for comedians to get on the radio, but it was the perfect medium for some people. On the other hand, Laurel and Hardy and Milton Berle uh, all failed. Groucho Marx failed on the radio for almost 20 years until he finally got the right show. but one of the things that interested me the most are these silent comedians. I don't think enough can be said about them. Uh, there's a large section on Chaplin and on Keaton. And, of course, there are others um, uh, uh, whom you may have snub Pollard and people like that, Laurel and Hardy, who began their career in silent movies. That They sort of had to write. They were all Chaplin Keaton, Jerry Lewis, Jim Carrey, uh, Lloyd. They were all what we would call um, control freaks because they had to write their comedy on their own body. They didn't have gag writers the way Bob Hope did or Jack Benny did. Everything they did had to be right. They had to do their own. They wouldn't think of having a stand-in. They became great directors because they knew better than anyone how to frame themselves on the screen. And uh, when sound came in, people like Chaplin refused to, to sort of get into it for a long time. Keaton was a disaster in sound. He hated it. He hated all the little jokes he said you had to make up. Um, uh, And Harold Lloyd had a tough time. Interestingly enough, Laurel and Hardy did not have a tough time making the transition to sound because their voices were so wonderful. I remember Laurel and Hardy were a team for about 12 years before talking pictures came in and you couldn't have cast that sort of englishman's voice with you know the the george and oliver hardy if you had tried it was just sort of magic and it worked so often comedians were were rather the victims of technology And that's why someone like Jerry Lewis, no matter what you think of him, uh, decided when he started making movies with Dean Martin, he was going to learn everything about movie making. Because he didn't want some idiot studio executive to tell him what his comedy was. Because his comedy is what he could do physically. So that's sort of an interesting kind of subplot to that episode. Um, That being said, uh, we're going to move on to another episode, which is the satire and parody episode. Um, I suppose satire and parody is probably the, 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 what would I say, the lingua franca of the 21st century. I mean, we're so steeped in it um, that the lines between what's real and what's made up is incredibly blurred. We have a whole section towards the end of this episode about shows like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report where you don't know what you're watching. The real news is so idiotic that you don't know when you're making fun of it, if you can make fun of it, um, or, 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 or anything you come up with can't be nearly as ridiculous. Um, we had a little section on Johnny Carson. When we started the series, in the script, Johnny Carson had the longest section of anybody. Um, when we started putting clips together, he, became, he got whittled down to something very short. Why? How many people watch John Carson's monologue at any point in their lives? Okay. Most of you. A good chunk of you. That was the town hall of America. That's where America sort of discovered its politics in a very sort of Midwestern, affable way. It wasn't the sort of screeching and and stridency that we get elsewhere, but it was very hard to extract Johnny because you had to be there, I guess. You had to remember who Wilbur Mills and Fanny Fox was. Um, and uh, those of you remember on his very last episode he said this has been a great time for me I've been on on the air for 30 years there have been seven presidents and thankfully for me eight vice presidents Um, and he said I want to thank Dan Quayle for making my last year on television such a fruitful one (laughs) and we laugh now and at the time when you watch it you go boy he was sure lucky I can't imagine a vice president or a vice presidential candidate nearly as stupid as Dan Quayle And then, of course, we had this past election. Um, So, one of the great things about satire and parody is, however much we mock our politicians, there's always somebody stupider to come along and and feed the comedians. And that's proven to be absolutely so. And people are saying, we would do all these talk shows. They said, what about Barack Obama? Are you going to make fun of Barack Obama? It's like, well, eventually, but in the meantime we have Rod Blagojevich, and he'll do for a couple of weeks, and Sarah Palin will go and say something stupid like clockwork every two and a half weeks, so I think we're fine. Um, this, is, I'm gonna, this next clip is a sort of collection of of minor, not minor superstars, but people who I hope will, will bring back some fond memories uh, for you. Um, just for a kind of interesting sequence of how parody evolved at a very tense time, the 1950s and 60s. Um, we're going to start in the middle of a <coughs> excuse me, section on Sid Caesar who people sort of forget really invented the idea of weekly parody on television. He did a 90-minute show in which he was in almost all the sketches for uh, four years and then an hour show for five years. I think Caesar log- personally logged in 400 hours of live television. Unthinkable. I mean nobody on Saturday Night Light comes close. Um, and uh, we also remembered that kind of before 1949, let's say 1950 when he started, you didn't have satire and parody quite the way we have it now. I mean, you might have Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but in that movie, the monsters are all played straight. I mean, Hollywood executives were afraid to do uh, a kind of movie that would make fun of their cherished genres, so you really didn't have... You might have comedies like The Paleface with Bob Hope in, in the Wild West, but, but you didn't touch the genre. And Sid Caesar and Co. changed all that. So we're going to start towards the end of a Sid Caesar section, go through with a couple of people I like very much.
1: Don't worry, me. If
3: I get in any trouble, trouble I'll kill, kill myself. <laughs> we did the movies that were current at the time. I mean, Needle uh, Eternity. I think we could be pretty sure that no one else had done it yet. And we were able to be urbane. We were able to be very hip. We were entertaining ourselves. We were aware that uh, we were doing something that tickled us and may not tickle other people. And Japanese movies were one of the things you you not get in a lot of places. And uh, we had to be brought to reality by somebody saying, Hey, fellas, you think they'll get this in Peoria? We didn't care. Some gun, when Caesar's Hour was in flower, there were not a lot of television sets in use. They were expensive. And expensive appliances tend to be bought by people who make a lot of money. And those people tend to be educated. And so we had a very, very sophisticated audience. As the price of sets went down, so did the IQ of the watchers, and we were finally knocked off the air by Lawrence Welk.
2: Reflective of what was going on in America at that time, and it um, made fun of it. I do have a cause, though. It is obscenity. You just don't get enough of it these days. The times dictate when you're allowed to do it and how you're allowed to do it. All right, it's okay to make fun of this now. It's okay to hear this voice. Smut! Give me
3: smut and nothing but...
1: To be smart, it must be actually without redeeming social importance. In the 1950s, the movie industry, the television industry, the music business, even the comic book publishing industry, all had rigid codes of conduct designed to promote decency and conventional morality, but rebellion was not far off.
3: Stories of tortures used by debauchers,
2: lurid, licentious, and vile, make me smile.
1: Songs by Tom Lehrer came out in 1953, when he was still taking classes at Harvard and teaching undergraduate math. It became an immediate sensation on college campuses throughout the country.
2: He had great jokes. The songs were brassy, bold, and
3: perfect for my college head.
0: When someone makes a move of which we don't approve, who is it that always intervenes? UN and OAS, they have their place, I guess. But first, send the Marines. For might makes
3: right. Until they've seen the light, they've got to be protected. All their rights respected. Till somebody we like can be elected.
2: Blue Cross, have me agree to a new Blue Cross policy. Blue Cross said I would be happy that Blue Cross covered me. Then I took a fall, lay in a splint, they said that I should read the fine print. When a very high fever I ran, they said that I took out the wrong plan. Oh Blue Cross, there seems to be plenty for Blue Cross, not
3: for me.
1: Taking a page out of Tom Lair's tune book, in 1961, Mad Magazine broke into the musical parody business. But if Lehrer's albums were the soundtrack for the cynical youngsters of the 1950s, their Bible was Mad. Would you
3: welcome, please, the man who was the publisher on the day they launched Mad, Bill Gaines. Since we don't
2: take ads, we don't take surveys, so we don't really know who reads Mad but we suspect that it's uh, largely teenagers. But is not created with any kind of a teenage readership in mind Never, like that? No, nothing I ever published was created to do anything but please me. And unfortunately, it pleases other people. We never write down to our readers. Uh, maybe that's why it's successful.
0: Matt provided a voice for those kids who um, saw through uh, the the hypocrisy in the culture, culture, but didn't know how to articulate articulate it. So MAD was, in effect, articulating their consciousness.
2: MAD was an equal opportunity destroyer. In
1: 1961, Sing Along with MAD was a big hit with its readers. But some of the songwriters whose beloved tunes were being parodied, including the great Irving Berlin, were not amused.
3: We were sued by the Music Publishers Protective Association for $25 million, as I recall.
2: And I went from court to court to court, finally to the one just below the Supreme Court. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Judge Kaufman, Judge Irving Kaufman said, Not even so celebrated a figure as Irving Berlin
3: has a property right to a pentameter.
2: Well, this is a landmark case,
3: which meant that so many things could be parodied and satirized never before because of this one thing of signaling with M.A.D. In his
1: 1964 decision, Judge Kaufman, who ruled in favor of M.A.D., cited the social benefits of the art of parody, which he wrote, has thrived from the time of Chaucer to, on a somewhat different level, the current vogue for the lyrics...
3: Alan Sherman. Alan Sherman
0: was not really as wicked as Tom Lehrer. He was a gentle satirist, and he was much more Jewish. Alan Sherman was definitively and
3: forever after Jewish, and that was that was the basis of a lot of the humor
0: in his songs.
3: And Sheila Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila moved to West L.A. Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila Harvey, and Sheila flew D.W.A. They bought a house one day, financed by FHA. It had a swimming pool full of H2O. Traded their used M.G. for a new X.K. Switched to the G.O.P., that's the way things go. Oh, that Harvey, he was really smart. He was just doodle, Sheila, fuck Oh, I think with a Church, they say that needs a VIP. This could be only in the USA.
1: Ethnic groups are attracted to comedy. When the Jews were in the ghetto, they became the comedians because they were outsiders. You're sort of just looking in from the outside. If you make fun of
3: your own in front of, uh, you know, the dominant culture here, you know, you can move next door to them. Uh, it's helped everyone
1: <laughs> uh, out
2: of the tenants by doing their special brand of humor. And it's helped everyone, because if you talk about it out loud, it should take away the curse of it all. And that's why I think it's an American, certainly an American thing.
0: And that, of course, leads on to Mel Brooks, which is a whole other story. How many people... Uh, uh, owned at one point in their lives a Tom Lehrer album. How many people at one time or another owned an Alan Sherman album? Alan Sherman is a somewhat forgotten figure. He had more number one albums on the charts than any artist until the Beatles came along in 1964 and knocked him off. Um, uh, again, this is the the kind of thing that we notice that that you know the Jews come in and can make. Not only uh, uh, funny songs about their lifestyle, but if you co opt music and lyrics that we've all known. I mean, he sings, uh, you know, if you know Alan Sherman, you know Hello Mutta, Hello Fada, which is a 19th century uh, uh, Italian opera. But if you sing a song that's part of the canon, but you put your own lyrics to it and your own take on it, you've sort of knocked it down a peg, you've made it your own. And that's really a great parallel, I think, to the American sort of melting pot story. And there's a whole other section on Mel Brooks which follows, and he does the next step. As Jason Alexander says in the documentary, there were no Jews in the Wild West. There were no Jews in Frankenstein's castle, you know, but Mel put them there, and and he put them where they didn't belong, and everyone had a good time. So... um, I also think that this parody, this mad parody thing, is probably a footnote of a footnote in legal history, but it's really had an immense effect on popular culture. Uh, Two other, Jack Benny did a spoof on his television show of the movie Gaslight, it called it Autolight, and he was sued by MGM, and then Sid Caesar had done a sketch, I forget what it was, and was also sued by the film company, until the film companies realized that if you parodied their movie on television, more people would go see your movie the next week. But Mad definitively wrote into the books that you, Americans, freedom of speech is freedom of parody. Uh, uh, that, or that is embraced by that, and uh, I mean just imagine all the songs and sketches on Saturday Night Light, and uh, let alone Mad Magazine, which was my Bible, and I'm sure the Bible of many other people in the room, just would have not been legally allowed. So these are these kinds of odd linchpins in American history that we don't know that we we were able to reveal. Um, of course, when it comes to freedom of speech, some of the greatest soldiers on the front have been our comedians. Um, one of the things that I find about censorship, which gets sort of lost and 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 uh, I don't know, sort of made sort of into one gray soup, is there really aren't censors. I mean, no two people have been censored for the same thing in the same way in American popular culture. We do not have a Lord Chamberlain's office the way they did from the, from the beginning of the 19th century all the way up to 1966 in England. You don't have to submit things. But, but there's the, the Hollywood Production Code, which looked after Hollywood for 30 years. There are sponsors uh, on tel- – I mean, they're, 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 um, they're called program practices on television. But there's no, like, one huge government office except sort of the FCC. And what we found out were different comedians irritated different people for different reasons. Mae West totally made the Hollywood censors crazy. Um, she came to Hollywood in a, in a very limited time between talkies and the code. It's called Pre-Code from 1927 to 1934. Not only did she make some of the filthiest movies ever made, she made some of the most popular. She was the most highly paid woman in America. And we have one little bit in the book where some... Person, I don't know, in the in the in the in the heart of the Bible Belt, said they keep begging us not to show these dirty May West movies and show clean ones, but they never come to the clean ones. They only come to the May West movies, which is typical of this thing in American culture. Mort Saul, who some of you will remember, got in trouble for some of his politics. Um, Lenny Bruce, as you may know, is a whole documentary and several documentaries. Lenny Bruce. What was Lenny Bruce's great crime was not the obscene words he used, per se, but his attitudes towards the Catholic Church, the American presidency, and the hypocrisy of the American bureaucracy. And he would have a real tough time when he played in particularly Catholic cities like Chicago or, at a certain point in time, New York City and 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 the police force was usually catholic at the time so they didn't want to hear his stories about the pope and jesus so they would find the this few words he said that broke cabaret obscenity laws and try and arrest him on that lenny bruce never went to jail that's an important thing to know he was arrested he was acquitted and he had one he was uh, convicted in new york and he died before his appeal could be overturned or convicted in 1966 so um of all these comedians, we, we discovered only one of these comedians, Richard Pryor, Mort Sahl, George Carlin, Lord Buckley, you name it, only one of them went to jail, and that was Mae West. She was arrested on Broadway in 1927 for a play she wrote called Sex. And the, the, the mayor at the time, Jimmy Walker, who was like, you know, uh, he, turned, he turned his uh, face away from corruption so often he practically screwed himself into the sidewalk. Um, <laughs> but he went away for a week on a vacation to Miami, and the, and the deputy mayor, whose name was Holy Joe McCormick or something, was inveigled by the local Catholic Legion of Decency and padlocked a lot of plays, and Mae West went to prison. She was for some lewd things in her play. I mean, lewd, they, they would, they, you would see them now on Cartoon Network and not blink. Um, but uh, she realized being arrested is like some of the best publicity you can get. Uh, and she parlayed that into a career. Um, But it's a very interesting issue. It's a complicated issue. Um, It's not simply comedians say bad things and those mean people arrest them or slap them down. Audiences change. The greatest power of censorship is not some judge or some commission somewhere. It's you. That is to say the power of the pocketbook is by far and away the most potent form of censorship. Uh, uh, and going on television or a movie, or, or the worst thing a movie producer can have is a boycott. The worst thing a television producer can have is, is you know, 100,000 people writing letters. Um, if you remember Bill Maher making that comment about the terrorists at 9 11 weren't uh, were, were courageous because they weren't cowards because they flew their plane in, there were so many letters sent to the sponsors, FedEx and something else. I forget that they dropped, the, they dropped their participation in the show. So it's gray and it's complicated. Um, one thing that's not gray, uh, at least for me, uh, during this is we interviewed about 100 comedians for this project. Uh, sad to say we lost a few uh, on the way. Dick Martin of Ronan Martin's Laugh-In, Bernie Brillstein, that gentleman you just saw, a great manager and producer, and probably one of the most interesting people we interviewed uh, was George Carlin. So uh, I'm, I'll be happy to take some questions and talk a little more, but I, I want to sort of close the parentheses of what I've been talking about in terms of censorship uh, with really an extraordinary individual. George Carlin. I would like to bring you up to date on the
3: Comedians Health Sweepstakes. As it stands right now, I lead Richard Pryor in heart attacks two to one. However, Richard still leads me One to nothing on burning yourself up. Too bad that we didn't get to hear him or Lenny Bruce in the 80s, the 90s. Now, boy, I would have been I probably would have just quit. You know, because they would be so great.
1: While Lenny Bruce was persecuted by local authorities, George Carlin's comedy went as far as the Supreme Court forcing a debate over the very definitions of obscenity and indecency.
3: We have more ways to describe dirty words than we actually have dirty words. That seems a little strange to me. It seems to indicate that somebody was awfully interested in these words. They kept referring to them. They called them bad words, dirty, filthy, foul, vile, vulgar, coarse, I like finding out what makes people uneasy and pressing those buttons. Find out where they draw a line, deliberately step across it, and try to bring them with me and make them happy that they can. Indecent, profane, obscene, blue, off color. Risqué, suggestive.
1: Cursing, George Carlin was always obsessed with language. And by the mid-60s he was enjoying success with a group of quirky characters that spoofed television news programs
3: that about wraps it up for news here with all the
2: sports is biff burns good evening sport fans biff burns here in the biff burns sportlight spotlight
3: spotlighting sports in the sportlight spotlight quickly the basketball scores we are running late 125 to 113 131 113. <laughs> Washington and Moscow are in flames. Details on these and other stories in just a moment. First of all, the pollen count. One, two, three, four, five.
1: (laughs) Tonight's forecast, dark. Howard's dream of making it as a comedian had come true, but he felt confined by what he could say on TV and in nightclubs.
3: I believed that the the establishment, the structure, the thing was wrong. I didn't like it, it didn't make, and and then suddenly I looked at myself and I found I was in the middle of it trying to pursue this dream. the The rebel in me was very active and restless. I began this evolution. I let my hair grow, I let my beard grow, and my clothing began to change. And I did it in public. I'll mention hair because to some people it's important. It's not important to me. I've only had my extra hair for about a year now. Actually, it's the same hair I always had. It just used to be on the inside.
1: You know? <laughs> Carlin worked up new material for coffee houses and college campuses across the country. He struck a chord with a routine that would become his signature. Seven words you can never say on television.
2: Nobody gives you a that's the problem, they don't give you a list. Wouldn't you think it would be normal if they didn't want
1: you to say something that tell you
2: what it is? Nobody even tells you when you're a kid what the words are that you're supposed to avoid. You
3: have to say them to find out which ones they are. Leonard Bruce had used the words you weren't supposed to use and he had talked about why are you afraid of these words. But Carlin was much better at sort of converting it into the kind of satire that people could, that the mainstream audience could understand. and cock. That's not dirty all the time. That's one of those words that's only partly filthy.
1: Cock, if you're talking
3: about the animal, it's perfectly all right. They used to read that to us from the Bible in the third grade. And we would laugh. <laughs>
2: cock is in the Bible.
0: Remember the first time you heard about a cock fight? What?
3: No. <laughs> There are seven words I haven't been able to find, seven words that have no, no redeeming meanings, and they are. You can't say imagine that. Can't say you can say boobs. Boobs spell the same forwards and backwards too.
0: (laughs) Boobs is alright, they can't say but they can say boobs. In fact, boobs is an answer now on Match Game.
3: I had boobs, Gene. Who's <laughs> <Ooh, it's> two hundred dollars? <laughs> two hundred dollars
1: fine, man. Only six years after the death of Lenny Bruce, George Carlin's album Class Clown went gold and won a Grammy. I was thinking about the
3: curse words and the swear words and cuss words and words you can't say or not supposed to say all the time because words. People...
1: In October of 1973, though. A follow-up routine about filthy words was aired on New York FM radio as part of a lunchtime program about freedom of speech. Listening with his 10-year-old son, one man, John Douglas, filed a complaint against the station with the FCC. I started hearing
3: words that I haven't normally
2: heard, uh, generally speaking, in any context, let alone on radio, and it just seemed to me that those words should not be coming out over something like the public airways. I don't don't think think the the words words or even the things they represent,
3: the parts of the body or the functions of the body, can be considered in and of themselves offensive, and especially when mentioned in the context these were.
1: The resulting court case between the FCC and the radio station went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that Carlin's language was not obscene, but merely indecent.
0: The decision itself says no guidelines for broadcasters. Rather,
2: it encourages self-censorship with the threat of license revocation after the fact of a
3: particular broadcast.
1: Neither the FCC nor the Supreme Court ever provided Carlin with the list he wanted. But by the time of the decision, Carlin had moved to another arena where his comedy was beyond the FCC's regulation, cable television.
3: Now, uh, I think if we're all going to laugh our asses
1: off. HBO really allows all of us to have a place where we can work the way that we work. Democracy is about different ideas and tolerance and accepting different... That's why I get very upset about censorship, because when we start to censor and we start to be intolerant, that's when the, the fiber of this country starts to get really scary, and, that, and especially scary for comedians. Listen to me America, freedom of speech means that we have the right to speak our mind even if it is offensive to other sensibilities. I can be funny about a lot of things, but I really need to be funny about important
2: things. I really need to reflect what's going on out there. I do understand that any country that lets me run my mouth the way I do in public deserves to be saved. There's a lot of things wrong with this country, but there still totally is free
3: speech. Like real freedom of speech.
0: Like real, real, real real
3: freedom of speech.
2: Separate God from school, separate separate God from work, separate God from government, but on your money it says, in God we trust. All my life I've been looking for God and he's right in my pocket. Because of freedom of speech, we're able to not worry about offending, we're able to be able to do that and get to the heart of the matter. And once you get there, you open the door and you're able to enlighten, open, and get into the truth. And I can do that because these guys did it before me. And that's what separates American
3: comedy from all other comedy.
0: So, uh, a a good way to wrap up. Um, A lot of people have asked us what's next in American comedy. Uh, If I knew that, I would be in a bungalow in Hollywood, not here in Colorado Springs. Um, Nobody knows. Um, uh, You know, as I said before, political humor is going to grow because politicians and what we do will never cease to be stupid. Um, The Internet has a huge effect on comedy, I think. Their, Their comedy... Heroes, um, a laugh or die, or if you've seen the wood, the Will Ferrell, excuse me, a landlord thing, whatever. That 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 uh, will go on probably to an increased thing. Again, talk about the way technology intersects with uh, freedom of speech, because. You have cable networks and the internet, they are not policed. They are not policeable. I mean, there's still some argument about whether the FCC will step in and cable television. But now you can, you could, you could, the uh, only way you could hear how a comedian quote unquote worked in a club in your own home would be on an LP or a CD. Now you can watch a videotape of the whole thing. And that's what's sort of interesting. So these become uh, a, a greater sort of venue to see comedians. Technology is also interesting in that. Um, you know, the great, some of the greatest physical comedians of all time now are, uh, you know, Shrek and um, uh, uh, Buzz Lightyear and uh, uh, Wally. Um, so people have uh, created on their computers in an office somewhere in Marin County some of the best physical comedy we know, but they can also marry them to some of the best voices. In, in comedy history. Jerry Seinfeld and Eddie Murphy and uh, Billy Crystal all do voiceovers for these animated features. Some of them are, are, are really excellent. And I gather that when they made Wally, the staff watched every Chaplin and Keaton movie they could to see how to be funny in relative silence. Um, but, you know, you, you never know. It changes daily. There's a lot of Falderall this week about the shift in the late night comedy lineup and what that'll mean. Um, it just evolves, and each group sort of steps into that particular place, I think, and, and reinvents it. And that's what's been exciting for for me to see in my lifetime is you know Irish comics giving not my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, in my lifetime, Irish comics evolving to Jewish comics to to black comics to gay comics to female comics. That that any time. One of the ways you can chart who has made it, who has crossed over in the mainstream of America, is to see who's a popular comic. Uh, and, and nine times out of 10, it's somebody who, was, who wasn't really quite allowed to the club uh, years or, or decades earlier. Um, so that's, that's the kind of roundup. Well, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs> Um, The uh, DVD is available on Amazon and the, the illustrated, the companion volume, which is 500 pages and has a lot of really interesting stuff, is also available. So check it out.